The teaching text today comes from Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us all here today. Please just open up our hearts to hear your word. In your name I pray, amen. We are on week three of our uh, just series on power, this idea of power, what it means as Christians as we uh, talk about the idea of power and, and just power dynamics that exist around us. And as I was preparing this week, I was thinking about the different uh, power dynamics that we encounter on a daily basis that, that so often we take for granted. Um, uh, I'm a parent of three boys and uh, very aware of power dynamics within our home, uh, parent-child dynamics. And uh, sometimes the parent is in charge. Uh, really, the parent's always in charge. Uh, but sometimes the kids think they are, right? The power dynamic gets reversed. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, at, at home, there's a, a power dynamic that's at play. Even uh, within husbands and wives, there are power dynamics that can be at play at different times that, that often we're not even aware of. Um, think about teachers and students. There's a power, power dynamic that's in play. Um, think about when we go to the doctor. Um, doctors have knowledge that we don't have, and yet we're the patient. And there's a power dynamic that is at play when we go to the doctor. Um, even within friends and friend groups, there are power dynamics like seniority shows up. Well, I've been his friend longer than you have. And there's just these like weird power dynamics uh, that show up. Um, even on Sunday mornings, John and I are very aware that there's a power dynamic that's at play right now, that uh, I happen to be the person this week, but I'm holding a microphone and um, getting to present, you know, God's word, and there's a power dynamic that's at play, and uh, we're just very, we want to be very aware of that and respectful of the power dynamic that's at play. It's interesting as we talk about this idea of power and we've talked about this over the last couple of weeks, that in our culture, uh, we hear the word power, and it's kind of like, you know, that's kind of our initial response when we hear the word power. Like, we start to hold our breath, or we kind of cringe, or like, we kind of want to like slowly back away from the word power. And I think that's because in our culture, we've gotten so used to power being abused, that, that power has become synonymous with this idea of violence, or or one person taking advantage of another person, that, that power isn't, in our culture, isn't, or too often isn't meant to serve other people, but it's to take advantage of others. And so, like, we've become a bit resistant to the word power. We don't like using it. In fact, we substitute power with other words like influence, um, which is the word I like, because it just kind of takes the sting out of that idea, power, um, but as we're talking about power, this week we want to focus on the idea of institutional power. And if power is a word that we like hold our breath and want to back away from, institutional power certainly is. It's, it's a phrase that when we hear it, immediately negative thoughts become attached to it for many of us, certainly for me. I begin to think of, of instances of institutional 
power being abused. And unfortunately, we tend to think of those stories before we think of stories of institutional power being used to bless or to serve other people. But we want to focus on this idea of institutional power as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus that are involved in institutions on a daily basis. What does it mean for us to faithfully live out are following Jesus in the midst of these institutions. And for many of us in this room, we carry institutional power of some sort. How do we faithfully live out that power in in the institutions uh, that we live in? Especially because most of them, if not all of them, are broken in one way or another. As I was thinking about this idea of institution and power within institution, I began to realize Gosh, institution is a word that we all use, and we all have words like this that we use, and we use it so often that we don't ever stop to think about, okay, when I say the word institution, what am I really meaning? When we talk about something's been uh, institutionalized or something like that, what does institution actually mean? And so I, I resist getting a little academic here, but I think it's important for us to start with a common definition of institution. If we're gonna talk about institutional power, What are we talking about when we talk about an institution? So there's a million different ways that you could define institution that would all be at least somewhat accurate. But let's just go with this just for the case of moving the conversation forward. An institution is a social structure in which people cooperate and which influences the behavior of people and the way they live. So an institution is a social gathering, a social structure where people cooperate which influences the behavior of people and the way that they live. Uh, in order to like flesh this out a little more, like how, how would you define, how would you know if something was an institution or not? Well, institutions tend to have these four things at play. They tend to have artifacts. They tend to have arenas in which they're lived out. They tend to have rules and they tend to have roles. And so as you think about that, like we're surrounded by institutions all the time. Oftentimes, institutions that we take for granted, that we don't even notice that, but at the same time are influencing the way that we behave. So again, I was thinking about this this week, and we're in October, and I started thinking Halloween and even trick-or-treating is an institution if we go based on the definition that we were talking about. If you think about it, there are artifacts in trick-or-treating, right? Kids carry around, you know, oftentimes orange buckets that are shaped like uh, pumpkins, they wear costumes and masks. Candy itself is an artifact of the institution of Halloween. Um, there's an arena in which that's played, right? It, typically in neighborhoods, kids go from house to house, and there are rules that are played, right? You go, you ring the doorbell, and you say trick or treat, and the idea is the homeowner either gives you a treat or you are privileged to get to play a trick on them, even though that doesn't often happen. Um, but that's, those are the rules. And there are roles that people play, right? Kids don't go trick-or-treating, or they're not supposed to if they're not dressed up in a costume. That's the role that they play. And, uh, and then there's somebody that stays at the house, right, to pass out the candy to answer the door. And then there's often a parent that walks with the kids around the neighborhood. There's an institution of Halloween. Yesterday, we, uh, many of us gathered around the, the TV or you went to a field and you either watched your kids play or you watched a college play football. And football is an institution, right? There are arenas in which football is played, whether that's at a park or in a stadium. 
Um, there are artifacts to it. There's helmets. There's like face paint, right, for the crazy people. Um, there's footballs and uh, there's rules to the game and there are roles that people play. There's the players themselves, the coaches, the parents uh, oftentimes, the fans, and then like the crazy fans. That There's an institution that is football and it shapes the way that our culture behaves. So those are some like fun examples of institutions, but there's others, right? Marriage is an institution, marriage itself. The family is an institution. The way medicine is practiced in our culture is an institution. The way our prison systems are run, our political system, slavery was an institution. Our education system is an institution. And the church itself is an institution. As we gather together, we're cooperating with one another. There are rules and roles and behaviors that are influenced as we gather together as the church. And so what does it mean as the church to, to live with institutional power, with institutional authority as we gather together, as we gather together as, as a community uh, that, that calls itself Cornerstone and we begin to shape our community, how do we want to leverage the, the influence or the power that those of us gathered in this room have together? As we've discussed the last couple of weeks, uh, biblically speaking, power, whether it's for an individual or within an institution, was meant for creation. From the very beginning, this idea of power was meant for creation. It was meant for giving life. It was meant for multiplication. You go back and you think about about God, our creator, chose to create Adam and Eve. And not only did he create Adam and Eve, but he chose to share his power with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were to be image bearers of the, the powerful God of creation, right? They were, to, they were to then do what God had empowered them to do, to rule over creation. And this idea of Adam and Eve ruling over creation wasn't, wasn't primarily for Adam and Eve's benefit. It was for the benefit of creation. They were to steward creation. They were to treat it well. They were to multiply. They were to create as God had created. They're given power by God to to rule and to create. Called to be image bearers. They are created in the image of this creative and powerful God. Called to be image bearers. As humans, that's our calling is to be image bearers of the God who created us. And so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this is The way the world was created, this is the way the world was ordered. This is the way God chose to empower and to share his power with others. And then in chapter 3, the fall happens. Sin enters the world and the serpent comes to Adam and Eve who are called to be image bearers. And the serpent tempts Adam and Eve with this fruit and says, If you will eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he, he takes this idea of image bearing and he manipulates it just a bit. And says that the Adam and Eve can be like who? Like God. He takes this idea of image bearing and manipulates it just a tad. It says, no longer are you to be a reflection of the God who created you, but you have the opportunity to be God himself. And what was intended for creation then turns to violence and destruction. The story immediately after the fall, the story after the fall of Adam and Eve, the the Bible shifts and tells the story of Cain and Abel, and we've got brother killing brother. 
And what was supposed to be a self-sacrificial order of creation where Adam and Eve are, are to be image bearers or, and are to be self-sacrificing in the creation of, of more life turns to violence. Yet Cain and Abel seeking to sacrifice one another in a self-serving way. And this is, this is an abuse of power. It's not that power is bad in and of itself. That's kind of our assumption, but it's because power has so often since the fall been abused. This is our, our tendency. This is this move from the image bearing that you and I were called to be as humans, as people created by God in his image, to be image bearers. When we turn that on its head and we take image bearing and flip it to playing God. Idolatry happens when in our own lives, rather than being image bearers, we begin to take on the image of God himself, making ourselves like God, no longer reflecting his image, but actually owning it as our own. This is, this is what the Bible calls idolatry. And oftentimes we make idols out of ourselves, but we can make idols out of other people as well, giving them the power and authority that was meant only for God. Abuse of power is taking this idea of image bearing and manipulating it just a bit to playing God. This idea of being like God. And sometimes we do this with good motives. In fact, the biblical narrative is, is just full of these stories, one after the other. Adam and Eve were called to be image bearers, but they're tempted into playing God to being like God. And because of that, creation like just takes this downward spiral from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11, and then God intervenes, and he, he calls this man named Abram. We just read this text from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He calls this, this man named Abram and says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a nation, and, and your nation is going to be a great nation, and I will bless you and your peoples with the express intent of them bl then blessing all the nations around them. Abram is called in such a way as to restore the call that was made to Adam, that, that Abram and the nation of Israel, which will be Abram's descendants, were called to be God's image bearers in the same way that Adam and Eve were called as well. They're called to bless all of the nations around them. And yet we watch as we read the Old Testament as Israel fails in many ways the same ways that Adam and Eve did, that, that they begin to make gods of other nations, right? That they want to be, rather than being a blessing to other nations, they want to be like them. And so the nation of Israel says, God, we no longer want you to be king, but we would like a king just like the other nations have. And even though God tells them, if you do that, you're going to end up with a king that will be self-serving because it, it won't be me that's king. It'll be a fallen person. They still beg for this. And so you have Saul, who's the first king that, that fails at, at being a blessing, not only to the nation of Israel, but in leading the nation of Israel to being blessing to all the nations around them. You've got David, who takes Bathsheba as his own um, in a self-serving way, sacrificing Bathsheba's husband in the process. And then you've got king after king after king that fails in much the same way. At the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, as Jesus like, enters, the, enters the story and enters the picture, you've got these different sects within the Jewish nation, within the nation of Israel. You've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and you've got the Zealots who are all trying to figure out how to be 
what God has called them to be, but most of them, if not all of them, are doing it in some sort of self-serving way. So the Pharisees are trying to protect the law in such a way that they're no longer a blessing to others, but they're holding it over um, not only themselves, but others as well. The Sadducees in much the same way, the zealots uh, who want to go to war uh, in order to defend um, the way of the Israel nation. All good intent, but abuses of power. Then you've got Jesus, um, who models this different way that we're going to talk about in just a bit, but he calls the 12 disciples, and he calls them in order to to teach them uh, his ways, which again we'll we'll mention in just a bit, in order that at at the end Jesus knows that ultimately he's going to take all of the power and authority that has been given to him by his Father, and he's going to share it with the disciples. Again, renewing the covenant that was made with Abram and the covenant that was made with Adam, that the disciples are to be image bearers in the same way that Abram and Adam were called to be image bearers. But they fail at this over and over again. In fact, they fail at it almost at the very beginning, right? Jesus takes the disciples um, up up to the upper room, and Judas has already betrayed Jesus. And many people, if you read the story, many people believe Part of Judas' motivation to betray Jesus was actually because he wanted to see Jesus ultimately display his power to save himself, to take on the the authority that he had to set himself up on the throne. So he betrays Jesus, hoping to, like, push this agenda. And so Jesus is in the upper room. He's about to be betrayed. Knowing that, he stoops down and he washes his disciples' feet, takes on the role of a servant. And he gathers them around the Passover meal and he breaks bread and says, this is my body, which will be broken for you. And he holds up the cup and he says, this is my blood, which will be shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And he then tells the disciples to do likewise. As he remembers, as the disciples remember how Jesus stooped down to wash his feet, Jesus is about to extend to them all the power and authority that he's been given. And he tells the disciples to do likewise, to serve others as I have served you. So he goes through all of this and takes the disciples down to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, knowing he's about to betray, be betrayed. And the guards show up, and Peter immediately draws his sword, right? And he wants to defend the power and the authority that Jesus has. He draws the sword. And it doesn't get it. It doesn't get that Jesus' intent because of his power is to go to the cross. Because Peter's still living according to the ways of our world. That, that the power comes by the sword. That the power comes by ruling over. And Jesus is, is trying to teach them and is about to model for them that power comes in an incredibly different way within the kingdom of God. That power comes from laying down your life. And Jesus is ultimately going to extend that power to the disciples that's going to ultimately be passed down to you and I. When Jesus says to the disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me and now I pass it on to you, he's passing it on to you and I as well. To those of us sitting in this room, that power and authority has been given to us. And yet, as the church, both institutionally and personally, we've failed to be the blessing, to be image bearers the way God's called us to be. As I was thinking about that, about this this week, I was thinking about, gosh, our call, like we've, we've got this power and this authority, we've got this power that's within the gospel message. We have the power to go 
Go tell people that their sins are forgiven. I mean, it's just incredible. People desperately looking for redemption and wholeness, newness, and we carry within ourselves the gospel message, this incredible power. And as we look around the world and we look at at people that don't yet know Christ, right? Well, we should approach those people with this hope that they would not be condemned, with a hope that's so strong, not only would we hope that they wouldn't be condemned, but we would hope that to the point of choosing to go to our own cross to prevent it. As followers of Jesus, we're called to carry this gospel message and to extend it to others and to be so hopeful of that that we would choose to go to our own cross to prevent the, condem- the condemnation of those around us. But instead, I think too often the church and Christians and even myself, have sought to ascend our own thrones, oftentimes at the expense of the condemnation of those around us. And sometimes, at its worst, the church has sought to ascend its own throne to guarantee the condemnation of those around us. Some of us have experienced this. We've been on the other side of this, and whether it was somebody's uh, sin or abuse of power that was intentional or unintentional, it's happened, and we carry the scars and the pain of that. As we gather together on Sunday mornings, and as we gather together in prayer throughout the week, and as we seek both individually and corporately as an institution, as a community, to be shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things, I know that we come as broken people, and that we will fail at this as a church as well. And when we do, Our call then is to confess that and to repent of it, to confess it, to own it. We haven't lived up to being who we were called to be. It's what we do at communion. It's the confession that we have not loved as God would call us to love. As we carry the weight of that, we think about this idea of power and authority and our own brokenness, that that we don't have it all together, that that I'm a sinful person. I, I think about power and I think oftentimes it's just easier just to deny the power that we have, right? We may not fall into the temptation of abusing power. What might be easier for us is to fall into the temptation to deny the power that we've been given. Like the responsibility's too big, so we just don't want it. So we shrink, we ignore it, we pretend that we don't have it. But when we do this, we're being just as disobedient as if we were to abuse our power. We're denying our image-bearing identity and being unfaithful to our call to create and bring life. And so as a church, we may be unfaithful to the power God's given us by abusing it, but we can also be abusive of our, of our power by failing to use it at all. Uh, in, his church, in his book, Playing God, Andy Crouch is talking about this idea of what does it look like to redeem power within our culture when Power and the institutions that broker power are so broken. What does the redemption of power look like? And he talks about zombie institutions. These are institutions that are incredibly powerful but have chosen to deny their power or ignore it altogether. It's like they're the walking dead. They have life, but they're failing to live it out. talks about even churches that are zombie churches, that are institutions that are full of power. We carry the gospel message. But a zombie church... Is, is a church that exists just to keep the lights on rather, to, rather than to be the light in dark places. I think for me, 
Um, I'm certainly can fall into the temptation of, of abusing power, but the temptation of ignoring the power that I have is far easier um, temptation for me to fall into. And Andy Crouch, in his book, includes this quote from Martin Luther King uh, in letters from a Bir Birmingham jail that like, have just like, struck me to the core uh, this week as, as I've been wrestling with this topic and just recognizing how in my own life I do this over and over and over again because exercising our power is so oftentimes uh, uncomfortable. And if, if image-bearing is to create and to give life and it's self-sacrificial, too often, I want to ignore or deny my power because I don't want to have to sacrifice my own needs or desires. But Martin Luther King writes this, or wrote this, um, in his letters from a Birmingham jail. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And I think of how often, because I don't want to disrupt things or make things uncomfortable, I want to keep order, I just remain quiet. And oftentimes we as the church do this as well. So if the abuse of power is not the way we want to go as, an, as a community and we don't want to fall into the trap of sin of denying the power, denying this call to be image bearers. What does it mean to look like, what does it look like to, to have power as an institution within our culture? And I, I, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is, is this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And we've read this quite often. In fact, we read it last week, so you've heard this. But I think it's so powerful. It's a powerful call to the church in Philippi, Philippi to be image bearers within their culture, and what that looks like. What does it look like to carry power in a creative, imaginative, and uh, healthy way? This is what Paul writes. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy com complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And your relationships with one another, whether it's in institutions or personally or socially or within your marriage or within your family, and your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, in going to the cross, like, institutes this new way of living within a kingdom. In reality, it's not a new way. It's the original way. This is the way kingdoms were intended to exist. 
But we read this message of the cross and we look at the life of Jesus and think that he's turned everything upside down, right? In terms of power dynamics now, up is down and down is up. The first is now the last and the last is now the first. But in truth, Jesus is putting kingdoms back to the way they originally were. It's just disorienting for us because we've become so used to power dynamics since the fall. God's making everything right through the person of Jesus. And Jesus is being the true image bearer. He's demonstrating what, it, what God looks like. God, who has all of this power, lays it down for the benefit of others. And in doing so, turns all institutional power dynamics on their head. Now, you think about governments, people that are placed in positions of power and authority, whether it's biblically speaking or even today, is always for the benefit of others. Any position of power or influence you have been placed in, and you probably have far more influence if you sat down and really thought of it than you imagine. Like anytime you use the word influence, there is power there. Every person that you come in contact with on a daily basis, you have power in that interaction. You have influence. And it's always for the benefit of others. Within your marriage, the husband and wife relationship is, the, is for the benefit of the other. No one person is to benefit from the marriage relationship. It is to go both ways. Parent-child relationships, same idea. Any of these institutions where power is at play, the people that have power are placed in that position for the benefit of others. In your work, in your job place, any position that you have of influence or power, whether your boss tells you this or not, as a follower of Jesus who is your true boss, it is for the benefit of others. And the question that we should be asking is, who is flourishing because we are in a position of power? And that's true for us as a church, as we're seeking to be a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. A question that we should be wrestling with together is who is flourishing because we're gathering together on Sunday mornings, seeking to live out the kingdom of God. As we're doing so corporately, our desire is to relieve not only immediate needs, but also to reimagine the institutional structures that create those needs in the first place. And this is the harder work, right? The immediate relief of needs is, the, is, it's hard work, but it's the easy part. Figuring out what institutional structures create the needs in the first place and working to reimagine those is the hard work. That's why we're gathering together on Thursday night for the Q Conference to wrestle with hard cultural questions. What does it mean to look like, what, is it, what does it mean to be the church in today's culture where power dynamics are broken? What does it mean to be the church and to leverage power Within a, within a culture where powerful structures are fallen. As we gather together, we want to talk about uh, what does it mean to look like to leverage our influence and our power in our local city, but around the world as well, whether it's through the education that we have, the social status, or the financial status that we have. How do we leverage that for the flourishing of others? At your work, whether you're a teacher or a manager or a custodian or a doctor or whatever role you may play, how are you leveraging your vocation for the flourishing of others? In our families, how are we living in such a way to help uh, those around us flourish? It's why we gather for prayer on Thursdays. It's one of the reasons. It is to just be praying as we gather together as a community. What does it mean for us to live out our Christian faith within our culture. 
This last week, a group of us, a small group of us gathered together and we're just praying. And this idea of peace just kept coming out. Like our culture and our society's deep need for peace. And what does it mean for us? What does it look like for us to be peacemakers in our culture? Not just peacemakers, but powerful peacemakers. What does that look like? And as we're thinking about institutions, whether it's the church or work or uh, medicine or the prison systems or the educational system, the story of great institutions of the world hinges on the exercise of, the, of power by the people that live within them. And that's true for you and I. And when we choose to follow Jesus, we're making the choice to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him. And as we read that story in Philippians chapter 2, this beautiful retelling of the, the story of the cross, the story of Jesus, I, I find hope in this. Because what we see is, is with the story of the cross is the, is the story of the culmination of, of failed institutions, right? The very fact that Jesus goes to the cross is the result of failed institutions. Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin passes off their authority to Pilate. They don't want to use and exercise their authority to bring about justice, and so they pass it on to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to deal with the situation either, even though he has the authority and power to do so, and so he passes it off to the crowd, and so Jesus goes to the cross. And then when Jesus is on the cross, there's this fascinating thing that happens that I've never noticed before, but, but takes place, and we all know the story. The, the guards gather together and they dress up Jesus in this image of power over, right? Jesus is king of the Jews. And their imagination of what king looks like means that person must have a crown, right? And that person must have the privilege of, of a velvet robe, of, of this robe, this royal robe. And in doing so, they're putting, on, they're putting their ignorance on full display. And they're ultimately crucifying the very institutions that they defend, and this gives me hope, like I was saying earlier. I tend to be a bit skeptical of our ability to be powerful peacemakers within the institutions that are built on self-serving power. I think about politics. We've got elections coming up in November. And I think, gosh, is it even possible to be a Christian and to be able to, to live that faith out within the political world? I, I wonder sometimes. I have a tendency to want to deny power as well because I recognize my own brokenness and inadequacy to step into it. But Jesus gives us hope. Paul writes, or uh, uh, Andy Crouch writes this in conclusion to, to his chapter on institutional power that, that I read, and I found this hopeful. It, it like kind of emboldened me a bit, and I hope it does for us as well. Uh, and this is in reflection of the cross. It's in reflection of the Philippians 2 story. It's in the reflection of the story of Jesus himself who comes and models what it means to live out the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of the world. And he writes this. To live after the cross and after the resurrection vindicated the cross's suffering and sacrifice is to live in a world where the fundamental elements of the world, the patterns of life that bring fear and death, have been disarmed. No matter how deeply embedded these institutions have become, no matter how taken for granted they have been in their exaggerated promises and their rapacious demands, the cross has excavated them and ruined them. The zombies have lost their power to control and terrify. 
The living dead have been overcome by one who went to the grave and returned and now lives to to breathe life into the image bearers, you and I, that he came to rescue. All that remains for us, made and restored in his image, to rise to our calling to exercise true power, even in the very institutions that now bear the marks of failure. Is it possible to exercise leadership in the institutions of the world without becoming captive to the principalities and powers that exploit them? To dispatch and even resurrect zombie institutions without becoming zombie ourselves? To bring back life to institutions that are failing and grasping for air? There's only one reason to hope that it can be done. Because Jesus already has. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have restored the call that you extended to Adam and Eve from the very beginning to be image bearers. God, that that's our call. And Lord, we oftentimes want to live in ignorance of that. Father, we so often want to shrug it off. And yet, God, you've empowered us with this incredible gospel message. And Father, while we're broken and weak and feeble, God, our power comes from you and what Jesus did on the cross. We are no longer citizens of this world, but we're citizens of the kingdom of God. No longer a citizen of of a kingdom that rules over and suppresses, but, Father, the kingdom of God that brings life in in self-sacrificial sort of ways. And so, God, I, I pray that as we gather around your table, Father, that you remind us of our calling to be image bearers, God, that is broken and as fallen and as sinful as we are, God, your desire is to to save us, to redeem us, and to restore us, that we might be image bearers once again. And so, Father, we humbly bring ourselves before you. Amen.